Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. As always, this is Andrew Keen, the host of Keenon uh, on a cold and, and very wet San Francisco morning on December the 22nd. I think uh, the days are getting longer now, but it is very wet. Lots of water in San Francisco, both on the streets and, of course, on the surrounding oceans. It's an appropriate subject today, water and oceans. And we've been having quite a lot of conversations, actually, about water and oceans. Uh, Yesterday, I had the wonderful young journalist, uh, Debbie Lockwood, on, who's written a book about stories on water, a new book called A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change. And later today, and and, and this is uh, for people watching, here's an image of all the places that Debbie went around the world, as you can tell from that map. Uh, There's more ocean than land, although all her stories, I think, came on land. Uh, Later today, I have a conversation with a very talented environmental writer, Bathsheba Demuth, who has a new book out, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, uh, that strait that exists between um, North America and Russia. Uh, More ocean stories, more stories about uh, water. Uh, earlier this year, um, we had Giulio Bocelletti on the on the show about how water shapes society. Uh, Bocelletti has a wonderful new book out, Water, a Biography, which was just included as one of the best books of 2021 in The Economist, which is quite, a, quite an achievement. So congratulations, Giulio, if you're watching. Um, today, we're talking more water and the sea. This time we're taking a more theoretical approach. Uh, My two guests today on the show are two uh, British-based, London-based academics, Liam Cambling and Alejandro Colas. They have a new book out, uh, Capitalism and the Sea, the Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World. So it maintains our watery focus uh, on this wet San Francisco morning. Uh, Let's begin uh, with uh, Alex Alejandro uh, Colas, uh, who's talking to me from Wilsdon Green. Right, Alejandro? That's right. Not as rainy here in the in the London bowl that we are. Is there any water in uh, in Wilsdon? There is, uh, the, the name is after a river called the Wheels Dun. So yes, uh, there's, there's affluence coming from, from the Chilterns, I believe. So water everywhere. And that, of course, is the, um, that's the theme of your new book, which you co-authored with Liam Campbell, Capitalism and the Sea, the Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World. Um, is the core argument in the book, uh, Alex, that, when we try to make sense of modernity, we we overlook the ocean because of its ubiquity. Not so much that, Andrew, but that that we often assume it, it its existence in the background. So, what we're really trying to do in the book is bring to bear the all the work, 
that goes on at sea, all the energy that is produced by the sea, all the heat that has been sunk in the sea through global warming. And this so-called forgotten space is one that is so central to our civilization that uh, we felt it was important to, to write a book looking at the, the relationship between that seven-tenths of the salt, salt water world and um, this, uh, this dominant form of society that we have called uh, the capitalist market society. Yeah, and um, the book is very original, very original take. Uh, as I suggested from this map, uh, the place we live, this planet, the Earth, is made up more of water than land. So the thesis of the book, I think, is, is quite compelling. Of course, uh, the other word in the title of the book um, is uh, capitalism and uh, I don't think it's any secret that uh, both of um, both uh, Alex and uh, Liam are politically on the left. The book is published by Versa, which is probably the world's leading leftist or Marxist publishing house. Um, Liam, uh, capitalism, perhaps uh, let, I know you teach your day job is teaching. Uh, let's let's um, let's have a little short class on capitalism. What does that word mean, or what, how do you mean it in the book? I'll take on. Thanks for having us, by the way, um, Andrew. And our take on on capitalism is that it's a, it's a social relation uh, that is based primarily on the exploitation of labour, so the extraction of what Marx would call surplus value or some kind of unpaid labour. Uh, but also, crucially, is also embedded in the appropriation of nature. And so what we try and do in, in the book, in our understanding of capitalism, is to understand the ways in which capital as a social relation plays out historically from its birth in the long 16th century, um, it's all the way through to kind of contemporary labour relations on boats, but also the geopolitical uh, dynamics of capitalism, which is you know, sets of states in competition with each other, but also very often in collaboration with each other. Um, and so our take on capitalism really tries to embed it in the, you know, the everyday world of the, the labor relations on boats, all the way up to the kind of the macro of the international kind of legal system and how that reproduces uh, this exploitative system that both produces massive progress um, so, you know, the, the, the sea is the, the centre of uh, the world economy in our take. The world economy couldn't exist in the same way without uh, ocean-going uh, sea transport. Linking up people and places in, in incredibly diverse ways, labour regimes out, you know, uh, dotted throughout Southeast Asia, supplying kind of assembly plants in China and so on. Um, but the just-in-time production that all of that, those global supply chains depend upon are embedded in uh, uh, the ocean, an ocean-going sea freight. And so what we want to do is, is to try to understand how this, these capitalist relations uh, uh, play out um, through the sea, rather than taking the typical kind of lens when trying to understand the history of capitalism and its contemporary kind of unfolding, which is to uh, focus on the land. I don't know if Alex uh, wants to add. Yeah, Alex, uh, let's let's bring Alex in here. Alex, do you want to add something to that? I mean, I, I got the sense from what Liam was saying that on the one hand, your definition of capitalism is rooted very much in classic 19th century or um, 
Marxist theory of labor exploitation, but you're also adding the environment, which Marx was less interested in. Is that fair? Um, I mean, there's a lot of debate around that. And we don't, we think it would be unfair to, to summarize him in that way, because there's a, a notion of capitalism as a very distinctive form of exploiting or organizing labor in the exploitation of nature. And Marx is very clear in both his magnus opus capital and in earlier works that there is no well two things that that humans themselves are natural beings you know we have our needs and our we have our own physical limits and requirements but he's also very clear that we can't live obviously enough without the so-called free gifts of nature or without transforming nature and the season especially powerful reflection of this because you, I mean, we can talk about this, but it's very difficult, for instance, uh, as you might do on land, to cultivate fish, um, at least in, in, the, in the high seas. Um, it's, it's, one can, uh, as we are doing, have been doing for several decades, capture, to try and capture the energy of the sea, including wind energy, but um, it's very difficult, or it's very challenging to sort of generate it from from scratch so there's all these natural gifts that uh the biosphere offers us and what uh the capitalist enterprise does is as, as liam was saying sometimes in a in a progressive and constructive way but always underlying with it some inequalities and super exploitation what it does is capture those those natural energies and transforms them into well into profit generally there's a liturgical element i guess to this book and to this debate uh, are you both marxists do you consider yourselves marxists is that like a rude question on a on a wet morning not at all well I, i'll speak for myself it's not a rude question and yes absolutely of the uh, of the Carl, not the Groucho uh, variant. Although I, I I do like the Marx Brothers a great deal as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what what uh, the other Marx what that Marx uh, the the other Marx said was that he would never join a club that wanted him in it, which is probably true of many Marxists too. What about you, Liam? Are you a Marxist the, uh, of the Carl ver version? Yeah, certainly. But the, I think that one of the things that's often misunderstood about Marx is that it's an extremely rich uh, set of analytical tools. And I think that the one thing that we try to do in this book is get away a little bit from over-theorizing or Marxologizing the sea and instead try to use some of Marx's tools that he uses to critique political economy in a methodological way. And so the book is ordered in that kind of way to try and tell the historical story of certain categories that Marx would use, such as exploitation and appropriation, but also some yeah. that he wouldn't, such as logistics uh, I mean, and the offshore. I don't want to spend this whole time arguing about Marx because too much, too much time and ink and money has already been spent on that over the last 200 years. But wasn't Marx essentially a modernist who believed that if we could exploit nature sufficiently to do away with capitalism and create communism on earth that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing i mean is there much evidence in marx's writing that he cared about the environment i mean i'll i'll have a go at that first he cares about it as as a a force of energy uh, almost as a as a socio natural force in that it it as we were saying earlier uh it's very difficult to conceive of 
such a abundance generated by capitalism without that particular way of exploiting nature. So he talks about it. I mean, Liam was saying we don't want to get too jargony, but he he was in conversation with a 19th century soil expert called uh, Justus von Liebig. And yeah. Marx uses this term, 19th century term called the metabolism of uh, labor with, with nature. And I think that's that, as Liam was saying, um, is one way in which uh, Marx really cared about the role of things like uh, actual material forces like fertility, like soil fertility, or the other natural gifts that we were referring to. And what we try and do in the book is, you know, together with many others that, be they Marxists or not, understand this is a useful uh, analytical framework, is use notions like metabolism or appropriation, or indeed another fancy term, which is quite important, which is the dialectic. Um, so I think that you're right, Andrew, there's, you could extract all kinds of parts of uh, Marx's writings throughout the decades yeah. where he and is you quite... use that word extraction, uh, of course, punishably, yeah. Alex, don't you? In, indeed. We're all and... in the extraction business. Right. And, and, I'm and extracting a... your wisdom. I don't know if this is a <laughs> capitalist enterprise. I'm exploiting you guys. I like the historical take on the book. Liam, uh, you mentioned the long 16th century. When I was looking at the book, it occurred to me that perhaps one of the great figures of this long 16th century was Sir Francis Drake, um, who I've done a couple of shows about, one with the historian Lawrence Burgreen about Drake as a pirate, his relationship with Elizabeth I and the foundations of European empire. In your historical analysis, are Drake and his fellow pirates and conquistadors of one kind or another, are they the founding capitalists of modernity when it comes to the ocean? Were they taming the ocean to tame the land? So the way me and Alex got together uh, to, to write this book uh, was Alex was the pirates guy and I was the fish guy. right? So I'll, I'll leave the pirates question to, to Alex. Okay. But what one are you of the doing things... with the fish, Liam? One of the things that we did kind of focus on was the, you know, the early modern kind of capitalist kind of period, uh, and particularly the emergence of the Dutch and the English empires. And of course, Drake was central to that. And what that allowed us to do was to start to unravel the kind of terra-centric kind of story in a lot of understanding of uh, the emergence of capitalism, the commercialization of agriculture, uh, in England, but also to try and link that up more fully or directly to maritime empires and to see the two things, as Alex said, as related or dialectical. Um, and, and certainly Drake was part of that story, but so were the Dutch and their incredible kind of emphasis on making boats go faster, but also carry more stuff, right? So they really kind of capitalized on trying to make ships uh, move more stuff around the world and, and on, a, on a cheaper basis, basically exploiting the labor of... of it, it, on, on it, Marx was always amused with um, paradox. Uh, do you think that he would have noted that the people best able to exploit the sea were the people who, who experienced the most scarcity of land, the Dutch and the British, particularly the Dutch, who have made an, an art of... of, of, of uh, of, of exploiting very small amounts of land and managing land? 
I think certainly, well, one of the key themes in the book is precisely kind of seaward facing societies. The Dutch and the, the English and eventually Britain were central parts of that story, but so, of course, was Japan. Yeah, and one of the, the the key threads that runs through uh, the book is the you know the emergence of Japan, the kind of the Meiji Restoration, and the kind of the subsequent greater co-prosperity sphere, and how very central the ocean was as part of both its imperialist strategy, uh, but also its industrial policy. So even after World War II, uh, Japan was still seaward facing. You know, it was trying to build ships, export orientation. And also uh, focus on kind of marine resources, which of course means building ships, i.e. fisheries. And so this kind of interrelationship between kind of marine facing uh, uh, um, kind of industries, um, I think is very often underestimated in the unfolding uh, of capitalism. What, what about the role of um, capital in all this? Uh, Drake was, of course, when he moored off Point Reyes uh, up the coast here in San Francisco. We was looking for this imaginary silver or gold. The economics of uh, the Drakes of the world, they weren't really capitalists, were they? They were pre-capitalist. I'll have a go at this. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, Andrew. I mean, the, the other term that Marx uses is primitive accumulation. And what right. yeah. Drake and his colleagues were were they're basically plunderers i mean they were pirates yeah they well technically they're called privateers i mean i don't want to get too technical but they were given license literally by yeah, the crown by, by elizabeth and that was the whole point of giving license to essentially steal and, and plunder that's right and it's it's in the context of war remember that at the time uh you know the the europe is at, is at war and so we've got to understand europe like, always at war especially in <laughs> 16th century, right? There was no periods when it wasn't at war. Correct. And that is... And that war was mostly over land and, I guess, sea. Of, of sea routes, but also the, the literally the booty, the, the war booty, and access then to eventually when the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade got uh, into full swing in the 17th and 18th century. It's, it's about access to sea routes. Um, so it's about buying cheap and selling dear, including human beings, and that is not technically uh, capitalism as we know it today, because as we've been saying, capitalism has, um, in, in, in at its best, as it were, it actually generates productivity, value. It's about free exchange. Whereas in its very origins, uh, it was dripping with blood and the blood of um, enslaved Africans, as we all know. And that was part of, if you like, a commercial capitalism but not one that, one that sought arbitrage, to use in the, the contemporary language, not that, uh, that sought to reinvest that, uh, that wealth as, as, a, as a dominant um, sort of logic. I mean, one thing that I'll say quickly is on your point about land empires and sea empires, the Spanish and the Portuguese, of course, uh, had, were at the forefront of the conquest of the Americas, but their dominant form of uh, of reproducing societies was actually to keep that booty and spend it on more war uh, or spend it on privileges right. for an aristocracy. So I think there is a distinction between the republics, the, the Dutch Republic, even the prior Italian republics that began to at least reinvest that booty into productive wealth, uh, as opposed to, say, the Iberians that, generally speaking, uh, were more interested in acquiring more land, more privileges, um, and actually ended up having to borrow a lot of, uh, of 
money from you know uh, uh, Central Europeans and uh, and eventually uh, the Dutch. It's great stuff. Tell me a story about water. I promised you at the beginning, and um, uh, Alex and Liam have been telling us a fascinating story of water from their new book. Uh, um, whoops, uh, their new book. Uh, what's happened here? Uh, the new book is uh, disappeared. I don't know what's happened to that. There it is. Cap uh, Capitalism and the Sea. Um, by uh, Liam Cambling and Alejandro Colas. We're going to take a, a, a short break now, um, Liam and Alex, and then we're going to come back and I want to talk about the meaning of your book. We've talked a little historically. I want to talk about the meaning of your book in a contemporary age. I also want to talk specifically about slavery and racism in the sea because I think that's an interesting theme. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are with uh, Liam Cambling and Alejandro Colas, the authors of uh, Capitalism and the Sea. I want to thank my old friend Andrew Leonard, who I think is watching this live in London as well, um, for introducing me to uh, Alex to do this show. Uh, we also need to note that uh, we very much hope that Spurs will beat West Ham today. And if they don't, I will blame Andrew Leonard. Um Back to the sea and capitalism. Uh, uh, Alex, you mentioned piracy, uh, and, and Liam said that you were the authority on uh, piracy. I've got the uh, the wiki page on piracy. Um, Drake, of course, was in a sense a pirate, but you're also suggesting he might have been a proto-capitalist or one of the builders of global capitalism. What about contemporary piracy, the Somali pirates? Are they the, the heroes of uh, anti-capitalism or are they another version of, of Drake? 
Is contemporary piracy good or bad in your political dialectic or neither? Uh, probably neither, but it's very different uh, because contemporary piracy that you've been referring to and that we're all more familiar with is uh, is really about hostage taking. It's about getting a payment um, for those hostages. And it's not really about appropriating the wealth of an oil tanker or whatever's been, been hijacked. So it's a completely different kind of business model, if you like. Um, it's also not supported by states. No states nowadays support piracy, and that was the, the case historically. Um, you know, the, the British Empire, certainly until the early 19th century, was built on piracy. So that, those are very, very important differences. I mean, I think there is, uh, I, I, I'm, there's, an, there's a rich ethnography on contemporary piracy, but the idea that the, say, the Somali pirates were the Somali Coast Guard and were somehow defending the natural resources of their coastlines, their shorelines, is probably incorrect, except maybe in the very early stages of the, the first instances of, uh, of piracy off, off the coast of, of Somalia. Uh, subsequently, ethnographers and other specialists have pretty much demonstrated that it becomes a, it's almost like a, a syndicalization of, uh, of profit making. Uh, that, as far as I'm concerned, is neither good nor bad. It's just the way that people make a living. No, it's just another, Generally, it's a more distributed version of, of capitalism. Um, Liam, there's obviously a, a European focus to your work because the origins of capitalism lie in Europe. But you also, in the book um, and in some of your interviews, you, you write about non-European adventurers. Uh, you write about a man called Zheng He, a, a Chinese mariner. So it wasn't just the Drakes and the Corteses of the world that were rampaging the seas to found global capitalism. What was the role of China and Chinese maritime endeavors in, in the foundations of modernity? I think the, the more important story, actually, to an East Asian context is, is, is Japan. Right, we um, talked about Japan earlier, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think that one thing that's often missed in understanding the emergence of Japan is this, the centrality of Japan's kind of shipping companies and the struggles that they engage with to try and stand up to the Western European liners, especially the Brits. And this was really in the period of industrial capitalism onwards. And of course, the main articulation of China with, with all of this story previously and in the industrial period was being subject to colonial and an imperial kind of strategies, including of the British around uh, uh, the, the, the tea kind of trade uh, with India, uh, but also, of course, the, the gunboat diplomacy with the British allies, the US, of the opening up of ports. One of the fascinating things, the kind yeah. of path dependencies of that history is a category that's still used in international trade now, which isn't the most favored nation. We don't write about this in the book, actually, but the the most favoured nation as a category is used in the World Trade Organization and other international trade bodies. But essentially, it came from uh, the Brits and the Americans uh, agreeing that the ports that they had plundered and taken kind of physical control of and, um, would have the same treatment of each other. And so it was a kind of an imperial kind of uh, old, old boys club uh, of trying to open up the entire East Asian economy. Ports were always important. You're talking to me, I know, Liam, from um, 
your mother-in-law's place in France, in Le Mans. Um, this Anglo-French rivalry fought over the channel, how symbolic or, or, or relevant is that in the foundations of global capitalism? Um, I think that it's it's an important uh, strip of water, um, and all the more so today with the ongoing fight over fish and post-Brexit yeah. <laughs> trading arrangements. Um, I, I mean, I think it's the, the French-British rivalry plays out in really important terms uh, for the rest of the world in relation to the history of colonialism and colonization. Yeah, I, I want to talk about colonialism, actually, but before we get there, I just... One thing occurred to me, um, it's again an irony, we did a show on modern Greece recently, um, and one of the things that uh, I remember is that, you know, Greece is the dominant country now in the international shipping business, and yet its economy isn't very strong. So you can be a major player in global capitalism um, without dominating the global economy. How do you explain Greece's centrality in global shipping and yet its peripheral role in global capitalism itself. Yeah, the, the, the history of Greek shipping is a very peculiar one, uh, and it's tied to the emergence of flags of convenience. Now, of course, the shipping magnates from Greece, which were tend to be kind of family-owned businesses and are still, you know, very significant, uh, tend to be in kind of more the tramp shipping area. So, for example, uh, smaller routes uh, or uh, less large conglomerates that are uh, uh, oriented around much more opportunistic trade compared to the Mersks uh, of the world, which are much more concentrated, controlling uh, entire chunks of the world. So although the Greek individuals play play a major role in terms of you know, capital, uh, which of course has a ties to the history of, history of London and maritime finance there, um, actually in terms of containerization and the other big kind of shipping industries that they're relatively small fry uh, and what we see instead now is in addition to the historical dominance of global shipping by western europe interestingly the us very rarely ever got a foothold in the global shipping industry we see now the kind of the, the re-emergence of, of east asia and especially with japanese but more recently with chinese uh, shipping companies as, as really being among the top dogs. Fascinating stuff. Um, we've done a number of shows recently on the Holocaust. And of course, the role of railways in the Holocaust is central. The railways have no moral good or bad, but of course, they were used for evil. The same is true of the ocean. The ocean is neither good nor bad, but it was used um, for the slave trade. We had uh, the British-based colonial, anti-colonial theorist, Kehinde Andrews, on the show. Um, he has a, an important new book out, The New Age of Empire. Uh, Alex, perhaps you could talk about the role of oceans in the foundations of the slave trade, particularly in the context of capitalism. I think the... So, first thing to say is that uh, this was a reinvention of an age-old institution, unfortunately, and it was uh, based, as we know, on chattel slavery. Um, so, the, the ocean plays a dual role. On the one hand, it is a form of differential accumulation. You buy cheap and you sell dear, um, as we were saying, in this case, uh, enslaved human beings. But importantly, the ocean is also a 
a space that creates distance. In other words, it generates risk. It generates the possibility of um, buying or um, enslaving uh, Africans who have many different ethnicities and languages on the African coastline and then priming them, to use the language of, of the period, turning them into generic individuals called Negroes, um, to people that are going to be then subject to a uniform enslavement and put to labor on plantations on the other end, in the Americas. And the sea is really important in that. It, it, it creates what one author called social death. It, 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 it allows the the living as it were to continue almost as if they're dead almost as zombies and it's no coincidence that that uh yoruba notion is so powerful in in the pericaribbean and and in parts of uh, uh the african parts of of the americas so uh, it, it's i think it's important to think not just symbolically of the sea as history and uh, as Derek Walcott would have it and as a as a cemetery of uh, millions Derek Walcott being the west indian um writer yeah, noble, no, noble poet, poet laureate. He wrote a famous um, poem where he, called "The Sea's History," where he, he refers to, um, I mean, obviously much more poetic ways, but to the ways in which the Atlantic Ocean is is a, a cemetery. Uh, but there's for... a reverse of that too in the the narrative of American capitalism or liberalism: the sea as liberation, the sea as the place you you use to escape from bad Europe to free America. So it goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's right. Although, again, we shouldn't underestimate how many of the Europeans, the Brits or others who arrived on American shores in their, certainly in their origins, were also indentured. So, uh, you know, be it Romanese, be it um, uh, descendants, you know, all kinds of uh, minorities religious or ethnic minorities or those that that were simply poor or had been um, had had been imprisoned were shipped over literally banished from from right. European lands um, but I, th I think your point is right that the by the 19th century and certainly the beginning of the 20th century clearly the shipping lines had been democratized or at least there was there was a cheap ticket to the Americas as a future and, and in that respect yes the the shoreline and the sea beyond it offers a horizon of opportunity, no doubt. Pictures, photographs are key, obviously, in, in all this. And uh, you're both academics. So let me give you a little quiz for the end here. You are familiar with this image of the traffic jam in the Suez Canal, which captured the imagination of the world uh, earlier this year. Uh, this uh, jamming of the Suez Canal by one of the world's biggest ships, what does it tell us about contemporary capitalism? and the contemporary oceans. Who wants to take that? Well, I think the Ever Given, um, this, this story is very often overplayed. And the reason why I say that is because what it shows... story is overplayed? Sorry. Well, the, 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 the blocking of the, uh, the Suez Canal and the implications that that had for global supply chains and the movement of stuff around the world... Um, the, the 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 main story was that it, it was this terrible crisis, and it called, it was on a very contingent, momentary basis. But what we saw the shipping lines do was very quickly reroute around uh, the South African coast and uh, shift. And so, although there was a momentary blip on the screen of profitability for global shipping, 
uh, it was tiny uh, uh, compared to, for example, the much more significant blip of you know, the global financial crisis of 2007-8, but also of COVID. And so what the Ever Given does, I think, in a popular sense, help us to understand is just how embedded uh, uh, Western European cons consumption and North American consumption is uh, in the kind of east-west superhighway and how so much of what we consume, uh, for better or worse, is tied to uh, the global production networks, which are kind of centered on China, but of course also include uh, the entire kind of East Asian and Southeast Asian region, you know, making widgets, sending it somewhere else to be manufactured more, to be you know, eventually assembled in China. And so I think that what we see is, is, a, is an over-egging of that, the, the ever-given pudding, um, but it's fascinating how it's become this kind of emblematic kind of image of, of contemporary capitalism. Yeah, because it's, it's uh, so limits. full of um, sort of vulgar imagery of, of things getting stuck in the lavatory, basically, right? Long thing. <laughs> uh, let, let's end. Uh, you, you got, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, Capitalism and the Sea, a new book by Liam Campling and Alejandro the dominant issue, of course, in the world today remains the environmental one. We've had all sorts of shows about the water crisis. We had Erin Brockovich on the show uh, recently. She has a new book out, Superman's Not Coming. Uh, from your book, um, Capitalism and the Sea, what lessons uh, does your work or your research offer in terms of using a shall we say, a progressive, leftist, even Marxist way of confronting a simultaneous crisis of inequality and global warming? I know that's a, a big question, but very briefly, do, do each of you want to have a shot at that? I mean, your book is very academic and specialized, but it's also broad. As Marxists, you have a broad canvas to an analyze modernity and inequality and injustice what what lessons can we learn? What are the what's the upside of the book? Well, let me offer a couple before Liam comes in. Uh, I mean, one is that the way in which we consumed is consume is very much premised on the way we produce, and we've we we've got to think about those sites of production where stuff is uh, produced and the kinds of social relations that Liam was referring to right at the beginning as the beginning of uh, thinking about different ways of consuming. The other thing is that uh, linking it up to the environmental aspects, Andrew, is that uh, the global ocean is a heat sink of this civilization, this, this, this fossil uh, capital that we live in, this civilization, carbon civilization we live in. And so one of the things to keep uh, remembering is that uh, that carbon is stored in the seas and the timelines therefore are completely different. Uh, as much as we're trying to keep the um, the temperature of the planet below 1.5 degrees, and as much as people based on land are, are trying to develop the kinds of policies that might get us there, we've got to bear in, in mind that there's going to be a release of heat from the seas um, for many, many decades, if not centuries ahead. So um, the other lesson that I'd say is that uh, much of what happens at sea is dependent on what we do politically on land. 
Excellent. And Liam, why don't you wrap up lessons from the book in terms of making the world a better place, perhaps a cooler place and a more just place? I think I'll come back to the earlier point that Alex made around metabolism and how the nature and 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 social forces are deeply Im, Im, imbibed. But another example to add to the, the heat sink is the question of acidification and, you know, the carbonification of the oceans, uh, which is at its greatest level than, for, for, I think, over two million years. And what it simply means is that uh, shellfish and shell creatures, tiny little plankton and so on, can't form their shells. And if they can't form their shells, they do no longer constitute the massive biomass which which lives in the ocean. It's not fish and so on. It's, it's these tiny little critters. And, and without them, uh, uh, climate change's kind of evil twin, uh, which which is acidification, uh, will go uh, unabated. And so I think what it teaches us is that to really understand the, the future of humanity and civilization, we have to rethink our relationship to the extraction and dumping of, of matter. And to actually think of as a species about how we can live with and part of, of the planet, as opposed to acting on it. And I think the oceans are a great, great way for us to start uh, uh, thinking beyond our current navel gazing. And when it comes to the species, um, Liam, what should we read to remind ourselves? I'm assuming uh, Marx's German ideology, perhaps to rethink what it species being is. A couple of quick reads. Well, potentially that, yeah. In addition to your uh, new book, Capitalism and <laughs> Liberty. Well, Good of course, Christmas our book. reading. It's always nice to read Marx over Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'd recommend uh, work by people like Jason Moore uh, to try and understand capitalism as a kind of world ecology, uh, but, but also uh, Stefania Barker, who writes a lot about uh, labour and social reproduction uh, and ecology. And so just to broaden out the way that we think uh, about uh, um, uh, the capitalist kind of nature relation. I mean, it's good the, that the, the Marxist tradition now is focusing so... so um... So, in, in such a creative and important way on, on, on global warming. And finally, Alex, any suggested reading over Christmas in addition to your new book, uh, Capitalism and the Sea? Well, if, if you're going to go full on Marxist, I'd say David Harvey is always worthwhile. Um, fellow Brit who's based in, in the US, different coast, he's on the East Coast, but David Harvey's work, and I think he's got a book called The 12 Contradictions of Capitalism. I don't know if it's Ooh, I need the 12 to get him Days on the show. of Christmas. Uh, I we do I do know him. Um, you have to introduce so, me. Yes, Excellent. he's he's terrific. So yeah, go for those twelve twelve. I, I'm I'm with the twelve days of Christmas. So I think it's the twelve contradictions. <laughs> twelve contradictions of Christmas. A wonderful title for this time of the year. Um, and uh, really lovely to talk to both of you, uh, Liam Cambling and Alejandro Colas, the author of the new book Capitalism and the Sea: The Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World. One talking to me from Wilsdon in North London, Northwest London, the other in Le Mans in France. Keep well guys, happy holidays. I won't say happy Christmas because as Marxists I don't believe you probably believe in Christmas, but uh, you believe in something. You certainly believe in world revolution. So here's to world revolution maybe in 2022. Keep well and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. Thanks.